information. Yeah. Are we gonna, after you present, are we gonna move yeah. this down? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So welcome to the first session of the 2014 Geriatric Mental Health Series, Driving Issues and Concerns Related to Dementia, presented by Dr. Dan Bateman. I guess you guys are gonna have to mute. The Northern New England Geriatric Center and its activities are funded by the Health, Sur Health Resources and Services Administration, HRSA. This funding allows us to offer this program to you at no charge. Our work is to enhance the care of older adults by offering a comprehensive interdisciplinary education program targeted to the healthcare workforce. We emphasize evidence-based best practice in geriatric care. In order for you to receive educational credit for this program, you must be signed in, legibly please, so be sure that you sign the attendance sheet if you are at a remote site. If you are online, you need to complete a form online, um, and you can contact us if you need that link. You should have received an evaluation form that we will need back from you after the session. If you are at a remote site, please hand this form to your site liaison. If you are watching by a live stream from your personal computer, please complete the form online and we will document your participation that way. Finally, you should have received a form that tells you how to obtain your continuing education credits and contact hours online. Please be sure to keep the sheets so you can refer to it later. And please, if you have cell phones, please silence them now. So without with that said, I am going to turn this over to Dr. Dan Bateman. Um, Dr. Bateman is an attending here in geriatric psychiatry, um, and I will allow him to introduce himself further. So one second, we are gonna get this up and running. Okay. Is the microphone down there? Do we need the microphone again? Oh, okay. Can people hear me okay? Just raise your hand if you can hear me. Okay, fair enough. Um, so I'm here today, so I'm one of the inpatient psychiatry attendings here, and I'm also a geriatric psychiatrist. And so one of the topics, I've given this presentation before, and it's a little bit updated, a little bit different this year. Um, and the talk is going to be on dementia and driving. Now, what, um, it, it's just helpful to know your audience off, often. Um, so how many people here are uh, nurses or, uh, or social workers or care coordinators? And how many uh, uh, physicians at all in the audience? Okay, all right. So. Um, I have no disclosures and um, we're not going to be talking about any off-label medications, okay? So here are our objectives today um, that I'm hoping that you'll take away from the presentation by the end of it. The objectives are to apply practical assessment methods for determining risk of driving status for persons with cognitive impairment. Uh, re recognize and recall the different Vermont and New Hampshire driving laws as they applied it to, to dementia. And then recognize the benefits of driving assessment referrals and transportation referrals for at-risk drivers with dementia, okay? Um, so dementia and driving, we're gonna talk about prevalence, a case, assessment, uh, state regulations, transportation, and referrals. 
Sorry. I don't know how we did that. Um, sorry about that. Here we go. Okay, so we're going to talk a bit. So this is our outline for our talk today. So definitions. I think we most of us here know what uh, dementia is. Um, and a lot of us do have patients who suffer from dementia. So um, a definition from the DSM-4, this is still the old, older working day, uh, definition. They've changed it for DSM-5, but memory impairment plus one of the following. So apraxia, difficulty with uh, completing tasks, agnosia, inability to recognize, aphasia, language impairments, and then impairments in executive dysfunction. And a decline is compared to prior functioning. Okay, and social and occupational impairment. Um, and then we're talking a lot about Alzheimer's disease today. And just for clarification, Alzheimer's disease is a type of dementia with a specific type of ideology, particularly amyloid plaques and neurofibrillary tangles that are deposited in the brain, uh, um, starting with the hippocampus um, and, and cause damage and lead to dementia. Uh, dementia is a growing problem, as much of us know. Uh, we've, there's a lot of talk about the baby boomers in particular um, hitting age 65, and so we expect the incident, we expect the uh, numbers of patients with dementia to increase over the next uh, 20 to 30 years. And so currently there's over 5 million people in the U.S. with Alzheimer's disease, and we expect that by 2030 here. By 2030, this number is expected to grow to 8.4 million. Um, the diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease in itself, so this is a statement from the Alzheimer's Association. Just having a diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease does not mean you have to stop driving. But what it does mean is that you'll probably have to stop driving at some point, okay? Um, on its own, it's not sufficient reason to withdraw driving privileges. The determination for whether or not a patient should stop driving should be based on a person's driving ability. So driving's complex and it's important to us as, as humans and as social creatures, right? Um, and it requires a lot of things. So you have to be able to make fast and reliable decision making. You have to be able to shift your attention from one vis visual stimuli to another. Um, and it's important because it represents a, sen a sense of independence it helps maintain social activities um, and allows people to maintain, maintain contacts with family and friends, uh, attend church, and uh, um, take care of IADLs such as shopping activities. So dementia and driving cessation, it's a topic that's very challenging for most clinicians, uh, caregivers, and for patients. So deciding when a person dementia which should stop driving is just it's a stressful thing to, uh, to um, discuss with people um, uh, and, and it's associated with uh, with patient frustration anger feeling humiliated feeling worthless uh, loss of independence and symptoms of depression and as we age uh, independence is something that's very important uh, to people and, and most people see driving as, as a form in, of independence right it helps people maintain their independence um, and it becomes a, a, a part of a person's identity at times people take a lot of pride in being a good driver and so having to give that up um, can feel shameful at, at times 
So dementia and crashes, just some data uh, on dementia and crashes. The risk for a motor vehicle crash for someone with Alzheimer's disease is two to eight times higher than the regular, uh, regular population. One study showed that 50% of people with Alzheimer's disease were involved in a motor vehicle accident within a five-year period. Um, so it just gives you a sense. And most people with Alzheimer's disease don't voluntarily choose to give up their license. They either lose it because of some kind of driving incident or because it was taken away from them. And to give you a sense of drivers over 75, so um, in the US, uh, approximately 4% of drivers 75 and older suffered from dementia. So what are some studies on driving? So there's driving uh, simulation studies and then performance-based road tests, okay? Um, so in terms of driving simulation studies, persons with Alzheimer's disease consistently performed worse than non-dementic controls. And then in terms of on-the-road tests or performance-based road tests, demented drivers had difficulties with people often wonder, well, why can't I drive? I, you know, I might not be able to remember things, but shouldn't I still be able to drive even though I have uh, dementia or shouldn't mom be able to drive still? Well, these are the, as we talked about, driving is very complex and you need a lot of skills to be able to do it effectively. Um, when, when studied, people with dementia have greater difficulty with merging, particularly left turns, signaling to park, and then following routes, and also lane changing and checking. So here's a case. I think case-based learning is something that helps in general. So this is a patient who I've seen and continue to follow. So Mr. J is a 74-year-old retired attorney um, and retired hospital CEO with a history of peripheral neuropathy and a diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease made nine months ago. His father had Alzheimer's disease and he helped take care of him in the past. He has no prior psychiatric history or other medical history. He has been on memory medications, uh, memantine and Dinepazil for two years and he and his wife <coughs> live in New Hampshire. Um, so. He and his wife came to see me because they wanted a second opinion and to change care providers. They were unhappy with the last provider. Um, and when we met individually with, uh, when I met individually with Mrs. J, she asks, will he have to stop driving? So just asking the crowd here and people at uh, away sites, what questions should we be thinking about when asking uh, and assessing Mr. J whether or not he's fit to continue driving? Um, has he had any near misses or accidents? Yep, so that's a really good question and, and um, an important risk factor because most people have some near misses or kind of dings hitting the mailbox mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. bumping into a fender in the parking lot right before a big crash. Mm -hmm. Yep. Has he gotten lost? lost? Getting lost, so that's a key thing. So it's not just being able to do the uh, the long-term memory activities of driving, but getting lost, and then people can get dehydrated, they can end up in different states. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's, it can be a big problem, especially when there's uh, environmental issues like snow, snow and freezing temperatures up here. What other things, what other questions would you want to ask Mrs. J at, um, about Mr. J's driving? Does she feel safe with him? Does she feel safe with him? That's a good question. Yep. Okay. Julie, I think you were gonna. I was gonna say the same thing. Would you drive with him, or do you feel safe when you're riding? Would you put your children? Oh, that's a better question. And actually, grandchildren. Would you let your five-year-old grandchild um, um, ride with J Mr. J? 
Any other thoughts that people have? Has this vision been assessed recently? Okay, that's a good that's a good thought and something that should be assessed. So it's not just dementia, right? But it's um, thinking about other attributes uh, of our older adult population. Hearing too, yeah. Has he been stopped by the police? Yes. So tickets or or, or other reasons for getting stopped. Um, so here are some things you guys have hit a, a lot of these questions. So do they obey stop signs and red lights? So that's a big one. And that's one that's kind of an automatic ding for you should think about you know, riding to the DMV to have someone's license taken away. Does he or she stay in, in his or her lane? Um, do they have trouble finding the controls? Do they have confusion on one-way streets? Um, uh, like going the wrong way on a one-way street. Um, do they turn the wrong way on the interstate? <laughs> Uh, drive too slowly or almost hit another car or object? Um, so those are important questions. And then, so there's this lifelong issue of bad drivers, right? Um, so I, I've seen that in clinic a lot where people say, well, you know, I've been a bad, liver, a bad driver all of my life. Well, it's not making excuses, but now you have dementia. Um, so has his or her driving changed? So that's important information. And would you let your grandchild or child ride with him or her? You know, people don't necessarily care about themselves that much, uh, but their grandchildren or children they care a lot more about. Um, another question that's not on here is, do they, does he or she have trouble backing up or reversing the car? When was the last accident, last ticket that we talked about? So these are warning signs, and this is from at the crossroads, and, and this is in, a, a nice pamphlet that's put out by the Hartford Foundation. So if you type in Hartford Dementia Driving, you get this really nice packet into Google, this really nice packet that you can share with families. It goes over all sorts of different worksheets for dementia and driving. Um, so these are some warning signs. If the patient's riding the brake, easily distracted, um, incorrect signaling, uh, honking horns, being aggressive, hitting curbs, dense, you know, dinging the mailbox or garage, Increased agitation. So it's not always, um, you know, sometimes people with, with dementia will have uh, greater difficulty managing their emotions, right, or irritability. So if you, you find someone kind of making more rash decisions, that that's an impaired judgment, that's a, a good question to ask about too. Trouble, trouble with inappropriate speeds, navigating turns, not anticipating potential dangerous situations. So there's all sorts of things. Um, using a co-pilot. So there's evidence that having a, a co-pilot, you know, a spouse in the car does not improve safety at all unless you have one of those cars with a brake in it, right? Um, like the driver safety cars. Um, but people tend to feel reassured, clinicians, we do too, but it really doesn't help anything. Um, bad judgment on making left-hand turns near misses. Um, and then confusing the gas and brake pedals. Um, and, and I think in San Francisco a couple of years ago, there was an incident where this and a lot of people were injured. Um, and I think even maybe a couple killed. Um, and stopping in traffic for no apparent reason. Those are immediate uh, signs for, to getting the person to stop driving. So what's the data for cognitive testing? And how does this inform our driving? So um, you know the MMSE, the Mini Mental Status Exam, you're supposed to pay a dollar every time you use it, right? Um, because they've, the Holstein um, family or company sold that off. Um, so technically you're supposed to pay a dollar. So we don't use that as much. Um, 
the Montreal Cognitive Assessment, which a lot of us use because it's well studied and, and, um, and, and been used in a lot of trials, uh, has not been uh, studied in predicting driver performance. Okay, But some of the aspects that are incorporated in that test are, such as the clock drawing test and the trails B test. The MMSE or Mini Mental Status Exam has mixed data. Most studies find that uh, there's worse scores correlate with worse driving, but that's not always the case. Um, and then the clock drawing test. So this is one of the best tests that you could use because of the visual spatial component, executive function component. If you think about asking your patient to draw a clock, they have to use attention span, they have to use recall, they have to register what you're saying, they have to hold it in their mind and use their working memory and then kind of visually, spatially put things down in an organized fashion, right? So it requires a lot of different aspects of cognition. So it's shown to predict poor performance on driving simulation tests um, with a 90% predicted value. Um, and then Trails B test correlates strongly, strongly with driving performance. So if you do well on these, it doesn't mean you're a good driver. Like I might draw, draw a really nice clock, but it doesn't mean I'm a good driver. Um, so, but I think one of the take home messages are these two tests are two of the best tests to use if you're gonna take a cognitive test with someone uh, and, and try to figure out whether or not you're worried about their driving in addition to the history that you get from family. Um, so here are some examples of the clock drawing test. So there's a lot of different methodology on how you draw clocks or how you evaluate clocks that are drawn by patients. This is a 10-point test. You'll see in the MOCA there's three points for evaluating things. I think the things that are important to look for is symmetry so that the, person's, uh, the person is able to put, you know, that you have the right amount of numbers. So you'll see in number five that's get, given a score of five in the upper right-hand corner there, the person gives way too many numbers and goes all the way around and then has an area of a, a blank area in the, in the upper left corner. So you want the appropriate amount of numbers, and then you want some symmetry to the numbers too. Um, and then the, the, one of the things that kind of disappears the first is that uh, with people who have mild cognitive imp impairment or dementia when doing the clock drawing test is the, you know, the concept of the length of hands so that there's a short hand and a long hand. That concept and abstraction kind of tends to disappear. And also noting that the hands need to go kind of in the middle of the circle. For whatever reason, people kind of lose that visual spatial aspect. So um, I usually ask a person if, if, if that's the short hand or the long hand, if they draw it equidistant. And usually you'll see that people get, uh, a lot of times um, the, the time that people will say will be you know, 10 after 11, that that's the traditional, one of the standardized times. I, I'll also use 145, because what you'll often see is the person will draw, draw a hand to the 45 rather than to the nine, because they get that verbal pull. Or you'll see a person just circle numbers, which is shows uh, more advanced dementia. Or sometimes they'll just make a couple of tick marks or write down 145, okay. Um, and and it's I think it's important when you're doing cognitive testing with people to not uh, that you know people can have what are you know catastrophic reactions so the concept that people are aware of how impaired they are and get very distraught about it um, so it's in, important to encourage people to just try to just do their best and that's okay and we'll move on when you're doing the testing so it doesn't really matter how you score it but more of what it looks like is the main, main take-home message so trails making uh, the test A and B. So this is incorporated, and this is 
I haven't found a good way to explain this to people. Uh, has anybody ever done this with patients? So you, you, you have to try to explain someone to follow this pattern, start with one and then, so it's easier if you do the, uh, and, and draw, see these circles with the numbers and letters in them. What I want you to do is start with one, connect to A and then connect to two and follow an alternating pattern of number, letter, number. So it's hard to explain that and for someone to get it. But if you do the trails A, which is just a whole bunch of numbers with circles in it and having the person connect it, that helps them understand the concept of what you're doing. So with the, with the true pit, uh, uh, trails making test A and B, it's actually you do a sample uh, for, for the trails A test, which is the connecting the circles one to two to three to four. And then you have the person do it. You time them with it. Um, and then you compare that time to the trails B, okay? And the trails B, which takes more time on average. So this is looking at kind of kind of rules of thumb, things to measure. You can look at the, the ratio of the two. So if someone has really significant psychomotor slowing, say from Parkinson's disease, and they take a long time, well, maybe trails A is still, uh, you know, compare, not, uh, trails B is not as bad compared to that person for, for trails A, if you see what I'm saying. If they have, this helps control for psychomotor slowing that a patient might have. But if people take more than three minutes for the trails B or more than a couple of errors, that's, that's a concerning uh, a sign in terms of driving, and that's also predictive for driving. So this is a, 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 a um, dementia rating scale called the Clinical Dementia Rating Scale. How many people have seen this before or used this in practice? So this is a global rating scale to evaluate people for dementia severity that was designed in St. Louis. Um, and it rates people on six different areas. So memory, orientation, judgment and problem solving, community affairs, home and hobbies, and personal care. And you'll see that there's um, five different categories. So there's normal, which is zero all the way down, fully oriented, no memory loss. There's questionable, which is 0.5. And that kind of, that correlates to someone with mild cognitive impairment often if you average a 0.5. Um, mild dementia ends up being a clinical dementia rating scale score of one, or moderate dementia, a clinical scale score of two, and, and then severe is three, which is the most, uh, most severe. And there's a complex system of kind of rating someone as being a one or 0.5, and there's also the sum of boxes where you add up all the numbers and scores. The, the, the take home messages here, the, the, these are kind of global scores in six different domains of uh, uh, of measurable symptoms, three of cognition and three of function um, that help you estimate what a, what a person looks like um, in terms of dementia severity. And this can be somewhat predictive uh, in, how, in predicting a person's ability to drive. So clinical, the clinical dementia rating scale or the CDR so early on in the illness, most people with Alzheimer's disease or dementia are able to pass a driving test. Um, in fact, I have a story of one woman that, that I've told this story before who um, had fairly severe vascular dementia, um, kind of late moderate stage. I mean, couldn't hold recall for more than a, uh, a couple of seconds, really. Um, went to go take the driving test with her husband because that's what we recommended. Um, she took the driving test, did perfectly on it. She didn't end up taking a written test. Um, 
because it was, I think it was age-related that she ended up taking the test. So she didn't have to take the written test for whatever reason. Um, but anyway, she took the test, passed the test, did great, flying colors, right? Passed the flying colors, left her husband there at the DMV and drove home. Um, and then the husband calls and said, you left me there, you know, come and get me. And then she said, okay, and then hung up the phone and forgot. Right, so, um, and then he had to take a cab, uh, a, a taxi cab home to see her. So it's a story that illustrates that people can still, the DMV is not always the best option for assessing people, right? Um, we'll talk about that a little bit later. Um, but I guess one of the, some of the take home messages though is that people can have impairments and still pass on the road driving tests. And that's what the message is here. So you'll see people who have a, a CDR score of zero, 100% of the patients in one study, this is a study of 75 patients, pass the on-road driving test. People with mild cognitive impairment or a CDR score of 0.5, 85% of those patients pass the, uh, the on-the-road driving test. And then 76% of patients with mild dementia passed. Um, and then it didn't get into more uh, greater severity than that. And then another study indicated that drivers with a CDR of one versus zero were much more likely to be judged as unsafe drivers six months down the road um, with a re relative risk ratio of 2.68. The main take home message is that people, you know, dementia progresses over time because it's a neurodegenerative illness. So a person might be good at driving now, but in six months from now, they might not be it. So as a clinician, we have to keep that in mind and continue to assess. This is that same study that I mentioned before. So um, how, how good is it how useful of a measure is it to ask a patient if they're a good driver or not, right? So actually, that's one of the class A uh, evidences for, or, or, or risk factors that's of, of no utility, uh, <laughs> class A evidence for the American Academy of Neurology for assessing someone's driving safety in dementia. Um, so 94% of patients with dementia self-rated as being safe, while only 41% of that population passed the on-the-road driving test. Okay, um, and we know that in Alzheimer's disease, there's a place between you know mild cognitive impairment and when someone moves into mild dementia, where there's some loss of insight, and that we know that for a lot of patients with Alzheimer's disease or dementia, that a loss of insight is there, and so we wouldn't expect patients to say that they're good drivers. Okay. Um, Caregiver sensitivity. So, how good are caregivers at rating or assessing people for um, safety in, in terms of on the road driving tests? So, sensitivity 47% and specificity 81%. So, think of how many pe people their caregivers are missing and be able, being able to assess their spouse or loved one um, in, in their ability to safely drive. And neurologists, experienced neurologists, aren't that great either. And I'm sure if geriatric psychiatrists were up here or, you know, <laughs> that they would be bad also. Because, and I think what this tells us is that we have to think about evaluating people in a systematic method, okay? Because just clinical, just our gestalt is probably not good enough. So professional society recommendations. So all the different professional societies that comment on dementia um, and driving, uh, the American Geriatric Society, American Academy of Neurology, um, the American uh, Association of Geriatric Psychiatry and the Alzheimer's Association, all recommend driving cessation for people with moderate to advanced dementia. So once you're past the mild stage, whether that's by functional impairment or by cognitive impairment, um, you should not be driving, okay? Because, uh, because studies have shown that people don't have the skill sets to be able to still drive safely. 
Um, now, the recommendations of when a person should stop driving in terms of mild dementia, those differ based on the organization that you're talking about. But they all have similar, similar paths, and we're going to talk about some different recommendations that are out there um, so, that you, so that people have a better sense of how to assess people in the office. So, can I ask you a question? Yeah. How standard is it for physicians to do that assessment? To, to do a standard assessment. Well, yeah, to recognize if there's some dementia and what should be. I think it's a complex question. I, I think there's plenty of people who have cognitive impairment and kind of um, float under the radar and, and that's not picked up on. Um, and I think part of it, that no fault of, of physicians, or, you know, the majority of people with dementia are going to be seen by primary care doctors, just because that—that—that's the there's not enough specialists, and, and those are the people on the ground seeing folks, the primary care providers, um, and there's not, um, and so, you know, I, I don't have numbers offhand to give you. But I mean, right here at Dartmouth Hitchcock, yeah. yes, I'm worried about someone that's going to be seeing this afternoon in a quarter three. Yes. And so I'm hoping that. Uh, I, I think. You know, the, oh, go ahead. That's the tricky part. Yeah. You can make the recommendation, but then who does the follow-up? Right. I've got a guy who's got dings all over his car. He, was, he told me he was hitting the animals. Yep. He, um, he had me rearrange the, you know, the thing that, the distance between the seat and the dashboard. Yeah. Because it was too close and he didn't know how to change it. Yeah. I mean, he had, he had duct tape all over his car. Anyway, right. so his doctor had recommended that he go driving, but nobody right. actually follows through that. So yeah. was it my job to call the... Police or well, I think this will be a good I mean, topic, kind of moving yeah, down the road yeah, that we can yeah. talk later yeah, in this talk. Uh, you're the perfect plant, so it's not easy. <laughs> it, it's not easy to, to discuss, and you, we don't like doing it. It's the worst part of my job. Uh, I think as a geriatric psychiatrist in the outpatient setting, it's telling people they can't drive because people get angry, mm -hmm. and they get and they won't see you again, and they'll yell, and so. Um, we'll, but we'll come back to that. So useful factors for identifying unsafe drivers with dementia. So the clinical dementia rating scale, there's some benefit there as far as evidence base, right? So the, the, the neurology recommendations are that, that that's a class A recommendation of assessing someone on a global, uh, in terms of global function and cognition. Uh, caregivers rating of a driver's ability is only marginally beneficial. Um, reduced driving mileage or situational avoidance. So this is like driving at night. I don't want to drive this far of distance out of town. There's not a lot of evidence that that's beneficial. And in fact, reduced driving mileage has shown that that's per perhaps a greater risk factor. Um, and then M MMSE below 24 is also, so there's not a lot of great evidence. These are all risk factors here. Uh, aggressive impulsive personality characteristics, history of crash or traffic citations. Uh, but you'll see the only class A evidence is, um, is the clinical dementia rating scale. And that means evidence backed up by good studies. Um, and then not useful for identifying unsafe drivers, so patient self-report, right? Um, and then patient's report. So back to Mr. J. Oh, I'm a great driver. No accidents or tickets in 30 years, which is probably true. He probably hasn't had any accidents or tickets in the 30 years, at least maybe for the next, uh, I don't know. Um, she's the one you should worry about. She's a horrible <laughs> driver. And even as his dementia's progressed, he's continued to perseverate on her being a bad driver. And, it, and it, um, so. Patients with dementia are not good predictors of their own driving impairments. So that's the take-home message. And loss of insight is part of the illness. So response, do you have driving concerns? Um, 
and that's what she asked me and I said it depends almost all people with dementia have to stop driving at some point in their illness um, and and that's how the conversation proceeded now let's talk about some different algorithms for how you assess people in the office okay um, so here's one algorithm so the first thing is you know not missing the cognitive impairment and now with the new Medicare screening available for doing some uh, cognitive, co assessment for cognition in the clinic, this is something that we're, and I know Ellen, you've talked a lot about that uh, over um, in, in more recently. Mm -hmm. um, and so using some kind of cognitive format or cognitive screen so that we are able to first identify cognitive impairment and then do the workup that goes with that um, and then uh, uh, further assessment. And what the, what this recommendation from the uh, uh, makes the from Carr and Carr is a, a, a group that um, he leads a research group that um, focuses a lot on driving and dementia is that if the patient has impairments in IADLs uh, or evidence of impaired traffic skills, then you know review further with the uh, caregiver, um, and then if so if you have or that's what you're going to be assessing for, asking for impairments in ADLs. Because if, if people are not able to balance the checkbook, do the grocery shopping, take their meds regularly, clean the house, likely they're also having some difficulty with executive function that goes with driving, right? Um, and so you wanna ask more about a driving history with these folks. And so you get to the point where there's maybe some impaired traffic skills, impaired IADLs, impaired cognition. So now we're in kind of no man's land, right? What do we do? Uh, when do we say, take away the driving, you know, Mr. Smith's driving. What? How do we move forward? So, um, so this is kind of a, a different decision uh, decision tree. So, if there's no impairment in traffic skills, IADLs, impaired cognition domain uh, or cognitive domains, then you're fine, right? You're fine for that visit, but you want to be following a person every six months is the general reckon, recommendation and, and reassessing for these types of questions: driving history and changes in cognition. If they're yes. Um, that there is impairment, but uh, they're moderate or severe dementia, uh, or have already been in an at-fault motor vehicle accident, or big red flags, you know, stopping in the middle of an intersection, driving on the sidewalk, um, then then it's a slam dunk, right? Uh, then you can easily say you cannot drive. And sometimes there's situations where it's very firm, and you have to be very firm. And we'll talk about what do you, what do you do with those situations. Um, but in, oftentimes you'll get the person to verbally agree to, to give up their license. And if they don't, then usually what I say and what risk management here has advised us to do is to write to the DMV asking that the person's license be suspended. Um, and it depends on what DMV you're talking about. If it's New Hampshire, you don't have to get a diagnosis. In Vermont, you do have to give a diagnosis. Um, and so it is a HIPAA violation. But I, I don't know, I'd rather be sued for a HIPAA violation than you know, people losing their lives or getting severely injured. So those are the easy ones. So no problems or severe problems. But you have the people in the middle. So, and this is kind of the, the difficult situations. Um, so yes, but questionable or mild dementia. Um, so in this situation, you might consider referring to um, someone, an occupational therapist to do a driving assessment. Um, you might uh, uh, refer to neurology or geriatric psychiatry to, to get a, a further assessment of the person or actually have the person test at the DMV. But we've already gone over what the people can still sneak by the on-the-road driver's test, right? Um, and, and, and you try to, 
what you when you have the consider the referral and the yes but questionable, you try to add pieces of information together and add up risk factors and think about um, what you're most comfortable with as a clinician moving forward. Okay. So here is the American Academy of Neurology uh, driving algorithm, and so they they add up risk factors and use their fancy CDR scoring method, right? So the higher you score on that CDR, um, then and you add that with risk factors, and then you put someone at a relatively high risk factor. And CDR two, that just means moderate dementia. So the same thing, really, right? Moderate dementia, then you then you move forward. And if you have history of citations, crashes, uh, low driving distance, situational avoidance, all of these different types of things, then then you that adds to your risk and then you encourage family or be more forceful. Let's see here. Um, and this is the dementia rating scale again. Okay, so this is a, a Canadian checklist. This is not evidence-based, but this is still, I think this is very <coughs> helpful clinically of, of the things to think about. It's a, a 10 point, I don't know, uh, time must be slower in Canada because I don't think you'd be able to <laughs> accomplish all these things in 10 minutes or, or, or the patients must you know, uh, give very short answers. So things to think about, dementia type. So think about the dementias that have more visual spatial deficits, okay? Particularly frontotemporal dementia and dementia with Lewy bodies and Parkinson's dementia. So those dementias have more visual spatial deficits as compared to Alzheimer's disease. Um, and so and you'll be, and particularly, so there's the visual spatial aspects, and then you think of alter, um, alternations in level of consciousness for dementia with Lewy bodies is one component of that. So you, if someone is having these spells with dementia with Lewy bodies where they're kind of waxing and waning in their a level of confusion, you don't want them driving. Similarly, people with frontotemporal dementia can have really severe judgment impairments. Um, so you might be asking more about decision making with driving more than um, other, other skill sets, if that makes sense, uh, if you have a person who you think may have FTD. And then functional impact of dementia. This is just getting back to the point before of checking for IADLs. So if they have deficits in IADLs or deficits in ADLs, they probably, you know, if they have IADL deficits, they're definitely at risk for, for um, driving impairment. Some kind of visual spatial testing, so clock drawing tests like we talked about, uh, trails making, or doing the inter intersecting pentagons that's present in the mini mental status exam, okay? And then physical inability to operate a car. Often this is much better accepted if someone has a history of stroke or um, is just physically unable uh, because of frailty or other physical impairments, musculoskeletal or otherwise. People accept that a lot more easily than with dementia. And then we, uh, someone here had mentioned earlier, visual, spiel, uh, visual field testing and vision testing and acuity uh, are things you want to think about. Uh, drugs, if the person's on benzos, alcohol, tricyclics, antihistamines, all the beers criteria meds, right? Um, and alcohol is not even a beers criteria med. Um, and then looking at trails, making A and B. And then the ruler drop reaction time test. Does anybody use this? I've heard of it, but actually never done it. And this is where you have an old-fashioned ruler, and you um, 12 inches, and it's placed between the thumb and index finger of the patient, um, with about half an inch in between, and then and you let it go. And if they can catch it, that's good reaction time. Okay. Um, 
normal would be catching it at six to nine inches, and if abnormal would be a failed trial. And if they have two failed trials, then that's you know hmm. delayed reaction time that you would be concerned with judgment uh, or or speed with reaction speed. Inside of judgment, so what would you do if you were driving and saw, these are good questions to ask patients, what would you do if you were driving and saw a ball roll out on the street ahead of you? Um, and then other questions like, with your diagnosis of dementia, do you think at some time you would need to stop driving? No, I'm gonna keep driving. Mm -hmm. That's the common, uh, common, or yeah, I'll give it up sometime. Mm -hmm. Yeah, one of the two. Uh, so Mr. J, 18 months later, Mrs. J has been having more trouble with Mr. J's denial of memory problems and irritability. She's worried about his driving, uh, more angry. He's been more angry while driving and, and during lane changes. He took off driving on one occasion and without her knowing it, without her knowing where he went. And she's just sick of it. You know, she's burned out. Um, she's sick of fighting with him about it and sometimes just lets him go driving. So that's a really dangerous situation, right? Potentially. Um, and it brings up a lot of topics and so I think what I'd like to do now, just for a couple of minutes, is um, there's this great website that you can refer uh, patients to and caregivers. Um, on the, it's the Alzheimer, Alzheimer's Association website, so www.alz.org, and you can type in dementia and driving, and they have four really nice videos uh, about how to deal and deal with different types of conversations with people. So let's see if we're able to, to hear this. stop driving immediately due to his diminished and deteriorating cognitive judgment. Frank's wife Betty agrees with the doctor. However, Betty has never driven and is an unlikely candidate for learning. She has relied on Frank for all of their transportation needs, but she knows she must confront him. Mm. I think I'll head on over to Jim's before it gets too late. Oh, honey, wait a moment, please. Um, this is from Dr. Roberts. Do you remember from yesterday? No, I do not. Would you read it, please? There's nothing wrong with my driving. You almost hit a man yesterday. He was on his bicycle. Don't you remember? There's no such thing as a prescription to stop driving. This is from Dr. Robinson, just to remind you, when we met with him yesterday, we met yesterday morning. Honey. I know, I... Okay. I sometimes forget where your hair... where you get your hair done. Uh, on Fridays, well, you get it done on Fridays, but that has nothing to do with my driving. You always told me to be honest with you. When this thing first started, you said, no matter how difficult, I needed to be direct. You almost hit a man yesterday. He was riding on his bicycle. Do you, do you know we could never live with ourselves if we hurt someone? We? This is us. We're a team. This is us. We. Frank, you've been driving for almost 60 years, and you're a great driver. But, but things change. We're older now. You could drive us. 
Not with my eyes. I couldn't get a license. But the cinnamon rolls. The coffee and the cinnamon rolls at the mall. Who's going to drive us there in the morning? That's our group. Frank, I've been thinking about this. Ted and Joan always say they want to help. Oh, he's a terrible driver. Uh, or we could start a carpool and we'd buy the cinnamon rolls and the coffee. Huh? Just the coffee. Oh, what does it matter? What difference is it, Frank? What about your hair? They're not going to take you to the salon, too. It's so close. I could get a taxi. Remember when we first made a decision to downsize to this place? One of the reasons we moved here was because it was so close to everything. That was part of the plan. Honey, please. What kind of a man am I if I can't even drive you to get your hair done or to the mall? No. That's not a life. That's nothing. A real man understands change and tries to act in a responsible way. You're a real man, Frank. I don't need a chauffeur. I didn't marry a chauffeur. I don't need you to drive me, to drive us. Nothing matters, Frank. Except you, nothing. You're all that matters to me. I love you, Frank. <laughs> so we'll, we'll stop there. So the, uh, the video moves forward, though. The videos are great because they, they talk about different strategies and approaches to conversation. So you'll see that uh, she took a very validating approach, right? Mm -hmm. So we're going to just run through some strategies with the time we have left. I'm conscious of that we only have about 10 or 12 minutes. Um, so demonstrate understanding and empathy, right? So th those are some of the things. You've been a great driver all of your life. Stress the positive. Oh, here we go. Sorry. Um, um, card um, stress the positive while offering alternatives. Uh, and this is something we'll, we'll often say is, you've been, you know, you've taken care of everyone for so many years. Why don't you let someone else help you? But people don't like that. Mm -hmm. um, but, but stressing the positive and, and talking about other options as she did during the video. Offering unconditional support. Um, you know, even acknowledging that people can feel bad when they have to give up driving. That it's a big part of, uh, of one's identity and independence. And then reinforcing medical diagnosis and, and directives with a letter. So saying, it's not your fault that you have Alzheimer's disease or dementia. It's really not fair that you have this diagnosis or that you've been a good driver all your life and now you have to give driving up. But it's not safe. Um, and so this is what we have to do. Um, and then having the person you know, actually giving, uh, giving a, a letter to the family member to you know, describing why they can't drive. And I've actually had a patient come into my office or family members come in and take a video of me with like a, with an iPad um, and an iPhone uh, of telling the patient so that they would remember the conversation, you can't drive for this reason and for this reason. Um, and then they can, I haven't gotten feedback yet on that, that's worked, uh, but, but it was at least something we've tried. 
Um, approach to conversation. Appeal to the person's sense of responsibility. You've been responsible all your life. To be responsible, you, we need you to give up driving at this point. Involve a family member or caregiver. Um, remain patient and firm and address resistance. So I think one of the things you have to get a sense of is where your comfort level is as a clinician and what you think is clinically most appropriate to protect the public and the, and the person and the caregiver, right? So you have to figure out what different ways you, um, what you're willing to allow when that person's leaving the office. Um, and that's a tough place to be in. And not every conversation goes well, right? In fact, these can go horribly wrong. So just prepare psychologically and mentally for a person to be angry at you um, and that these a lot of people have limited insights. And caregivers will be angry with you too because just as in this, this wife uh, was not angry, right? Uh, but, but she could have been when talking with the doctor about it because it's a big life change. People lose a lot. And, you know, adult children of people with dementia, that affects their lives too because now they have to drive mom or dad around everywhere, right? And so, um, and so they don't like that either uh, sometimes. Um, trying to offer alternative transportation suggestions can be helpful. Um, and there's not always a lot of options, particularly up here for that, but it's something to think of. So what if they refuse to, to stop driving? Okay. So some situations necessitate immediate action, such as following an a accident, really huge warning signs like stopping at, you know, the, driving on the sidewalk like we talked about, uh, red lights, not stopping for red lights. Writing to the DMV is the first part. Um, if the person's if they're not willing to to give up, um, so usually you want to try to give the person one opportunity to give up driving, and you say we want you to give that up, unless the person and in the office I'll say that with them, and they say no way. I said well we need you to give that up, but if there's if if not we would have to to write to the DMV, um, and so sometimes they'll say well yes or no. Um, after that, but, you, but you've documented in the note that they have agreed and that the, someone's witnessing that they've agreed to not drive, okay? Um, and, and you can't necessarily stop them, but you, but you should probably try to talk with the caregiver or spouse or whoever's there with the person separately mm -hmm. about strategies, which is if the person's refusing to stop driving, controlling access to the keys, um, potentially disabling the car, um, uh, consider selling the car. So people just see the car and they're reminded by the car and then want to drive. And then ask the person to, to show the prescription not to drive. Mm -hmm. Other tips to limit driving, transition driving responsibilities to others, just starting that out. Have a family authority figure. Um, reinforce the message, a fam close family friend perhaps. Try different ways of distracting the person when the topic of driving comes up. And for some people, it doesn't matter how significant their dementia is. If there's one thing that they're going to remember, it's how that provider took away their license. Um, <laughs> something with the hippocampus, I'm not sure exactly how it works. Um, but uh, the other thing is to think about finding ways to reduce persons, a person's need to drive. You know, meals on wheels, having groceries delivered, uh, have, having other people help with picking up medications. Um, a couple last, this is one last case. Um, we don't have much time, but this is... Um, so this is for Mr. J. So he ended up getting um, tested three times in the state um, for the written test, failed at each three times. So he didn't get the opportunity to take the drive the, on the road test. And he was able to receive a special court hearing. And then they allowed him to take an AARP class 
uh, and then potentially retest, but he kind of lost interest um, and so didn't get any further. Mandatory reporting for um, people with dementia or for people who are deemed medically unfit to drive. There's only six states in the US that where the reporting is mandatory. New Hampshire and Vermont are not one of those states. New Hampshire driving law, so uh, physician reporting is permitted. Um, it's not required and it's confidential unless the driver requests information, it's subpoenaed or used as evidence. Um, and the same goes for Vermont, okay? And for New Hampshire, there's a multiple choice time-limited computer-based knowledge test um, that you have to get a, a passing grade of 80% and you must wait 10 days before a person can retest. And then the road test, you have to pass the written test first and then they look at skill in handling the vehicles and traffic, driving habits, um, you know, different aspects and you have to again wait 10 days before retest. So the laws are the same in Vermont. Um, 20 question, uh, a 20-question-based knowledge test, and you have to get an 80% passing grade. Which is, what's interesting is Vermont is, is that if, if you fail the test, you have to retake it within 30 days. So they kind of get people, force people to do it um, sooner. And license is not reinstated until you pass a uh, operator's road test if you fail the road test. And this is the form that you can find online for Vermont driver's license medical reporting form. Um, and then something to think about are driver evaluations. These are really cost prohibitive. I don't know if people have referred patients to these before. Mm -hmm. There's only a couple of places that do them. Um, Fletcher Allen will do these tests. Um, Crotchet Mountain will. Uh, and these are in, in the uh, on-the-road occupational therapy tests. And they're excellent when they're done because occupational therapists are really good at being able to assess and evaluate. Um, do we have any occupational therapists here? All right. Yep. Uh, so you guys are really fantastic at being able to evaluate uh, people in the car and different skills and what a, a person's thought process is um, and, and limitations they, they might be facing. Um, but I think the challenge is getting a, a person to agree to that because, because of the cost. Um, and I've heard different numbers for, uh, for costs. Um, you know, upwards of three hundred dollars. Oh, it's six hundred. So we refer to White River Junction, yeah. which is yeah. the adaptive driving. That's really the only one we ever refer to, and it's between six and seven hundred dollars. That's what I, Dr. Santilli had said. It was almost close to a thousand. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. They'll sometimes cover the 